In this week's episode, we look into the tragic lives of our blonde bombshells from the 1940s era, before Madonna, even before the one and only Marilyn Monroe, the quote-unquote blonde bombshell set Hollywood on fire. It was so much more than the color of one's hair. It was an attitude. It was a lifestyle. It was an era that still lingers today. Taylor Orsi would write for The Atlantic, quote, Before Harlow, there wasn't such a thing as platinum blonde. Although people using hair lighteners like hydrogen peroxide was nothing new, there was no dye on the market that could make one's hair as blonde as jeans, end quote. Jean Harlow would be the platinum blonde bombshell that started it all. Karina Longworth of You Must Remember This podcast says, quote, In Hollywood, blonde women are often blank slates in which viewers are invited to project their own desires. The female blonde can become the female victim, whose promise seems to have been all the more promising when cut short, end quote. Last week, it was the genesis of the platinum blonde trend. This week, we see how it spills into the next decade. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. She was born July 6, 1923 in Kentucky as Cora Marie Fry, but the world would come to know her as Marie McDonald. Her mother was a former Ziegfeld girl which planted the seed for the stage, and when her mother and second husband moved the family to Yonkers, New York, she could barely wait to jump in. At 15, lying about her age, she began getting modeling jobs. She dropped out of high school with her mother's blessing and entering beauty pageants, eventually winning Miss Yonkers and the Queen of Coney Island, among others. In 1939, she won the coveted Miss New York but as she followed through was unable to attain the Miss America title. However, this exposure got the attention of directors and producers of the Broadway stage, and before long she joined the ranks of major stars such as Ray Bolger, W.C. Fields, Eleanor Powell, Ann Miller, Dolores Costello, and even George Gershwin, who all got a boost in their careers by appearing in the George White scandals. These were long-running strings of Broadway reviews similar to the Ziegfeld Follies that ran from 1919 to 1939, and then moved on to a series of movies highlighting the stage performances but adding a flimsy story to tie the two together. Her overbearing mother would travel with her and oversee her every move, which some believe was the reason she chose to elope with sports writer Richard Allard in 1940. The marriage lasted all of two weeks walked out on him when she found out her diamond ring was a fake. She had the marriage annulled immediately. She then began a relationship with theatrical entrepreneur Sir Charles Frederick Bernard. She stayed with him at least long enough for him to have the gap between her front teeth fixed. Her work in the scandals would get her foot in the door of Hollywood. She signed on with Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra for his radio show. Dorsey had personally heard her singing in a nightclub and signed her on for the radio show. She also got gigs with several other bands as well. 
It was work, and she was building up a nice resume, but it's not what she wanted. To earn extra money, she took work as a cigarette girl. This was actually how many starlets got discovered. They would wear the skimpy little outfits and carry a large box offering customers in swanky clubs and restaurants the convenience of purchasing cigars and cigarettes right from their table. You know what the popcorn and peanut industry did for the ballpark. Same idea. Bring the product to the customer. Because of this, she was spotted by a talent scout and was brought in for a screen test. She did sign a contract with Universal in 1941, but the roles she was offered were less than glamorous, most with either no speaking parts or a single line, building a nice resume, but not what she wanted. She had a serious and public romance with actor Bruce Cabot, and reporters took it upon themselves to say the two were engaged. She was unexpectedly dropped by Universal and knew that some serious changes had to be made. So she hired talent agent Vic Orsatti and donned the platinum blonde crown. Before the next year was complete, she signed with Paramount Studios in July of 1942. And then she dumped Cabot and eloped with Orsatti in January of 1943. In 1944, she would get her first leading role in the comedy Getting Gertie's Garter. Her beautiful face and shapely frame would cause the press to give her the tag Marie, the body McDonald. She would be a popular pinup girl throughout the 40s. She was building a nice resume, but it wasn't what she wanted. She realized she needed more publicity and decided to take matters into her own hands. In 1946, she divorced Orsati, and he still acted as her agent but began a juicy, headline-grabbing public romance with gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. She decided to sue Hunt Stromberg, who held her current contract, stating they stole money from her by not promoting her career. Also in 1946, <laughs> it was a very busy year for her, she signed on with MGM and got a break, starring with Gene Kelly in the musical In a Big Way. The two would complete the movie, but it was vastly known that she and Kelly fought regularly. Her big break was a big flop. MGM blamed the beautiful but under-talented actress for its failure, and she was encouraged to buy out her contract. By September 19, 1947, gangster Bugsy was out, wealthy shoe tycoon Harry Carl was in. It's rumored that he would break up with her because she could never show up on time. Punctuality just happened to be one of the gangster's little peccadillos. Carl and MacDonald were married, and he requested she go back to her natural brown hair. When she did, her career all but stalled. While she was still getting small roles in movies, on stage, and even on television, she was unhappy. She would complain of health problems including ulcers and having fainting spells, and her husband spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to find the cure. In the meantime, with every attempt, she was becoming addicted more and more to the prescription meds. She decided that children would make her happy, and the couple tried unsuccessfully several times, each pregnancy either miscarrying or stillborn. Crushed, they adopted a daughter, Denise Susan, in 1950, and a few months after, adopted a son they named Randolph Harrison. She would say, quote, The Hollywood producers don't realize I can sing. They don't realize I can act either. When they want window dressing for one of their movies, they say, Bring in the body. End quote. 
She had enough of window dressing, and she announced she would be retiring from the acting life to be a full-time mother. In June of 1954, she was arrested for driving under the influence because she was overdosing on sedatives and crashed into three parked cars. She agreed to plead guilty to a misdemeanor charge and was fined a paltry $50. Behind the scenes, the marriage was in trouble, and rumors of abuse leaked to the public. They separated and reunited several times before a divorce in November of 1954 made it final. Well, not quite. They ended up getting back together and remarrying in June of 1955. Soon after, Marie would discover she was pregnant. Again. During the fifth month of her pregnancy, her husband Harry would beat her so badly that she was hospitalized and almost lost the baby. She filed for a divorce in May. On September 18, 1956, a daughter, Tina Marie, was born premature. And because of the trauma and the fact that Marie would continue to abuse her prescriptions, the child would suffer from learning disabilities for the rest of her life. In the meantime, Marie retracted the divorce proceedings. While still married but living in different residences, in 1957 she made headlines by claiming she had been kidnapped by two men. Police had found her on the side of the road wearing her pajamas, screaming that she had been forcibly taken from her home by two assailants. Police Lieutenant Ernie Johnston told reporters that Miss McDonald called columnist Harrison Carroll at 4.35 a.m. and said two men came to her room and took her out of the house. The Ellensburg Daily Record would report on January 4, 1957, quote, First word of the disappearance came from Miss McDonald's mother. She said she received a phone call at her home at 12.45 a.m. Mrs. Tuboni said, quote, a male nervous voice told her, We have Marie. No harm will come to her if police are not notified. The mother called the police and went to her daughter's home. She said the front door was open, lights were on in Miss McDonald's bedroom, the children and servants were sleeping. End quote. Carol himself would report the incident in the Herald Express, repeating things she told him, such as, quote, They are in the next room. They think I'm asleep. That's how I happened to get hold of the telephone. End quote. The detectives, however, commented, quote, We are treating it as a kidnapping until we find out different. End quote. Amazingly, she was not only able to call Carol from the Herald, she was also able to sneak a call into her agent, Harold Plant, and British actor Michael Wilding. She was dating Wilding at the time, who happened to be one of Elizabeth Taylor's ex husbands, and she was said to have been with him a few nights prior. Side note, both Elizabeth Taylor and Marie McDonald would claim seven marriages. However, while Elizabeth spread hers out over 46 years, Marie chalked hers up in less than 25. McDonald would go on to say that when she was discovered using the phone, they beat her. But after their attack, they would blindfold her and drove her around while discussing their plans to flee to Mexico, their initial plan being foiled and all. The story continues that when they heard about the search for their kidnapped victim in the back seat, they pulled the car to a screeching halt on the side of the road and turned her loose. A truck driver found her wandering down the road, picked her up, and contacted authorities. Her body had been bruised and two of her teeth were cracked, but she was fine otherwise. But things just weren't adding up. In their investigation, McDonald admitted the kidnappers allowed her to pack a bag and would discuss with her how much money to ask for her ransom. 
However, also in their search, the police would discover the novel The Fuzzy Pink Nightgown, in which the plot is oddly similar to the events played out in the McDonald kidnapping. There was a grand jury investigation, but after the mudslinging between husband and wife, the whole thing was chalked up to a publicity fiasco, and she would receive no punishment. The Los Angeles Public Library would later document, quote, During the 1957 Marie McDonald kidnapping investigation, police noted that McDonald's story did not match the police evidence, and after an extensive investigation, they determined that they could not find any conclusive evidence that the event took place due to perplexing discrepancies. A few weeks later, a grand jury convened to investigate the kidnapping, but after weighing the evidence, the grand jury could not come up with any conclusive evidence to bring charges against anyone. MacDonald never admitted to staging her own kidnapping. End quote. In 1957, the volatile couple went through a divorce again. The last five years would be documented as nothing but drama. She was awarded a million-dollar divorce settlement before it was all said and done, and this time around, the divorce stuck. Side note, after divorcing, finally, Harry went on to marry actress Debbie Reynolds. Backing up a bit, during a USO tour with Bob Hope and Eddie Fisher, Marie had an affair with Eddie Fisher, the then-married-to-Debbie Reynolds. Not sure if she knew it at the time, but the joke's on her because Fisher was also already having an affair with Debbie Reynolds' best friend, Elizabeth Taylor. Those two eventually married. But wait, there's more. When Carl eventually married Reynolds, making a peculiar lover's uh, square, Carl's other addictions, probably overshadowed by his headline-seeking wife, came to light. People magazine previously reported that he was known to have bad gambling habits, make bad business investments, and have something of a prostitute addiction. It would additionally be reported that he spent over $7 million of Reynolds' money and technically losing both of their fortunes. Marie McDonald, however, had already moved on to the already-married casino owner, George Capri. He promised to get a divorce to marry her, but when that didn't happen, McDonald would attempt suicide and have to be hospitalized to save her life. She bounced back and married agent Louis Bass, This marriage lasted for only 10 months. By now, she should be getting the marriage punch card discount. She would cite mental cruelty to get out of this marriage, but for the next one, Edward Callahan would file for a divorce a little over a year later, and he would cite mental cruelty toward her. She would fire back that he was cheating on her. Hang with me, the roller coaster of husbands is almost complete. We only have director Donald F. Taylor left. But before that marriage, she had to have a nervous breakdown or two, a stint in a mental hospital that she escaped from, and an arrest plus fine for faking a prescription for Percocet. She was given one last chance to save her career and would meet the man who loved her more than life. Promises Promises deserves an episode all on its own, but I'll stick to the highlights. This was the first major motion picture to include several nude scenes. It was said that this honor was going to be reserved for Marilyn Monroe in another movie she was working on, but because of her untimely and unexpected death, fellow headline grabber Jane Mansfield stepped up to disrobe. The movie was being directed by Donald Taylor, 
and Marie and Taylor would be married soon after meeting in 1963. They would separate several times due to their sometimes violent, high emotional state of their relationship. On the morning of October 21, 1965, Donald would find his wife slumped over at her vanity, dead. She had overdosed on Percodone. She was only 42 years old. The experts ruled her death was an accidental suicide, but that did not ease the pain of her passing. Donald Taylor would follow only three months later, taking his own life. Carl, the father of their three children, did not want them after Marie died, but then his wife, Debbie Reynolds, insisted. The children came to live with them, and she financially and emotionally supported them until her death in 2016. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi Deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Born Constance Frances Marie Ackelman, November 14th in 1922 in Brooklyn, New York. She would be considered a quiet youth, preferring to stay to herself and not eager to make new friends. Her mother decided it must be some sort of mental illness. She would talk about losing her father to a tragic death when she was only eight years old, and then her mother married again within a short time following. Another year later, her stepfather was diagnosed with tuberculosis, and the family moved away from their Florida home to New York for the treatments. When Arcani turned 15, her mother pressed a doctor to tell her what was wrong with her child. She was diagnosed as a classic schizophrenic. Connie flat-out refused the stigma that would forever be attached to her name and refused the brutal treatments that were known to accompany it. You can scroll back to listen to episode 21, Who Needs a Personality Anyway?, on lobotomies to learn more about mental illness treatments if you're interested. Her parents felt acting would be a form of treatment for the mental condition. When Connie graduated high school, her mother and stepfather moved to Beverly Hills, California to enroll her into the Bliss Hayden School of Acting. Side note, this diagnosis, which, if sought today, would have been largely disproven and easily explained by other observations, but having this doctor-sanctioned mental illness would hinder her own self-belief and dump heaps of speculation on any quote-unquote flaws on her character. Just something to keep in mind as we go forward. Her first film would be offered in 1939, although a small part in the movie Sorority House, it was the beginning, being signed up for two other movies that same year. A small part in an Eddie Cantor movie called Forty Little Mothers would be the first time the public would really get a shot of her with her hair down. Her screen test was spotted by the powers that be at Paramount, 
and they cast the 17-year-old in I Wanted Wings. She was cast as a nightclub singer, and the stories say she would sneak out at night to go to nightclubs in the area to watch and learn from the performers there. And it's believed this is the environment her eventual habit of drinking began. Constance Aquaman Keen was renamed Veronica Lake. Producer Arthur Hornblow described her eyes as being like a clear blue lake. This minor change seemed to alter her destiny. Veronica would say in the article, I, Veronica, quote, Arthur Hornblow was responsible for starting me. As producer of Wings, he was the one who okayed the test. He saw a showmanship angle in the one-eyed hair. He made up my name and picked a wardrobe. Special stills were released. He is certainly co-author of the character I am, end quote. During the filming of I Wanted Wings, she met and married John S. Detley in 1940. He was 14 years her senior. John Detley was an award-winning art director that was also in high demand. So while she was filming in Texas, he was being sent to Gallup, New Mexico to work. In my research, many who worked with her would complain about her indignant attitude, her prima donna air. But what they forget is, even though she was cast as an adult, she was still only a 17-year-old newlywed that was kept away from her husband because of their jobs. Not making excuses, mostly, but most 17-year-olds in love could barely concentrate on more than the subject of their admiration. Most only having the distraction of high school, not a million-dollar film on the line. This, more than anything else, I believe, would explain her little jaunt to leave the set without telling anyone where she was going to be with her new husband in New Mexico. According to the book Peekaboo by Jeff Lindbergh, there was a report of an affair she was supposedly having, this being her first experience with Hollywood scandal news. She fled to be with her husband just to be clear where her loyalties lie. Later, she would share, quote, During a break in filming, I read a gossip column that I was supposedly fooling around with another man. Today, it is easy to say I would have laughed, but then I couldn't take it that way. I know that it was silly to run away because I got balled out by Leeson. I thought my feelings had been trampled on at that time, but a real blow taught me how gentle life had been on me till then, end quote. While the studio put out an all-points bulletin on their starlet, she was racing away, ready to give it all up for the sake of love. The story goes she was driving through a snowstorm in the mountains of California. She lost control of her vehicle and it rolled off the side of the road, tumbling over rocks until turning upright and coming up to a stop mere feet from the edge of a cliff. Scraped and bruised, she hobbled her way back up to the road where she was seen by a farmer and his family. They gave her a lift to Flagstaff. She was taken to a local doctor who repaired two broken toes and lacerations on her legs. Her husband was called to pick her up. She was lucky to be alive. Both the studio and even the husband admonished her for her actions. Her husband saying, quote, If you're going to be a star, and I have a hunch you are, we'll both have to get used to columnists, end quote. At first, Paramount tried to yield her with a heavy hand, but once they found out she was perfectly fine being cut from the movie, they changed their tactics. Veronica 1, Studio 0. The studio accommodated her absence around her, and when she came back, toes healed and emotionally salved, she was ready to work and give it her all. But this incident would brand her as, quote, difficult to work with, a brand that would follow her throughout her career. It didn't help that oftentimes she would prove it correct. She'd say, quote, 
I'd established myself in the hearts and minds of Paramount as a temperamental little brat with an arrogance of a nobody, end quote. The movie I Wanted Wings, which premiered March 26, 1941, opened to critical acclaim and would pole vault Veronica Lake to stardom whether she was ready or not. Diabolique magazine would write, quote, The movie was released just as audiences in then-neutral America were ravenous for stories about how prepared their armed services were for war, example, dive bomber and buck privates. I Wanted Wings was a huge hit. Lake stole notices and was launched a movie star, end quote. The Milwaukee Journal of December 28, 1941 would print, quote, Miss Lake got herself a nice place in Hollywood's big parade almost overnight. Now her studio calls her a star and is backing her with large money. Definitely a find of 1941 is Miss Veronica Lake. She's the number one pick of her studio among its young lovelies, end quote. The New York Post would write, quote, she displays more acting ability than one expects for one so young and sleek-looking, thus arousing anticipation for her future appearances. By this time, her peekaboo hairstyle became more famous than her acting chops. As it is with the entertainment industry, everyone, comedian and Hollywood gossip alike, had a turn at the hairstyle and would help her stand apart. It was long and sleek and would dip across one eye, allowing flirtatious glances and a sultry stare peeping from behind it. She patiently played along with all the jabs, everyone telling her that she's finally someone if they're willing to tease her or tease about her. Don't take it personally, and any press is good press was the advice for the day. Finally, it would even out, and Cecil Carl, publicity director at Paramount, would say, quote, Los Angeles' first stories and stunts seem to drop into our hands with almost yawning simplicity. I'll admit that the one-eyed gimmick got twisted to the point of nausea that we even created and fed out ideas of our own to the press to capitalize on it, end quote. Her next movie was Sullivan's Travels. Diabolique magazine would comment, quote, Sullivan's Travels in 1941 is about a wealthy director played by Joel McRae who decides to pretend he is homeless in order to experience real life. Lake was the girl, billed as the girl, he meets on his travels. She is captivating, magical, and extremely sexy whether sitting on McRae's lap in a bathrobe and combing his hair or walking along the road in a hobo overcoat, end quote. Side note. Veronica Lake was pregnant with her first child upon showing up at her set for this film. She didn't give the producers or directors the heads up on her little surprise, fearing they would replace her. But her fears were unfounded. The film decided to move forward anyway, hiding her pregnancy along the way. Under a hobo coat? She is obviously about six months along. She would give birth to Elaine in 1941, a little over a month after filming. The New York Daily News critic Kate Cameron wrote, quote, Veronica fulfills the promise she gave in I Wanted Wings by giving a first-rate performance, end quote. Quote, whether it was the pregnancy hormones, her deep insecurities, or something else entirely, Lake was uniformly rude to almost everyone in Sullivan's travels, snapping at cast and crew alike and flying into tantrums at the drop of a hat. At the end of the shoot, her love interest in the film, Joel McRae, vowed never to work with her again, saying, Life is too short for two films with Veronica Lake. P.S. Joel McRae would eventually go back on his word and star in another movie with Veronica Lake. So in 1941, she claims top billing in two movies, Sullivan's Travels and Hold Back the Dawn. 
and then she is cast in a comedy. She falls naturally into the gentle comedy as was seen in Sullivan's Travels. In I Married a Witch, she is paired with Frederick March, and the two did not get along at all. March made no secret of how he felt about his co-star, saying quite publicly, quote, she was a brainless little blonde sexpot void of any acting ability, end quote. At this point, growing her starlet thick skin, and not to take an insult lightly any longer, she shot back that he was a pompous poser, among other colorful feedback. She'd say, quote, he treated me like dirt under his talented feet, of all actors to end up under the covers with. That happened in one scene, and Mr. March is lucky he didn't get my knee in his groin, end quote. Despite the tension on set, the audience was delighted with Ms. Lake's on-screen performance. After this, instead of responding to the audience's requests for more clever and light-hearted Minx characters, they cast Veronica back in another film noir, luckily starring with the comfortable and personable Alan Ladd. The two were magic together, and in 1942, The Glass Key was considered another hit for both. In 1943, when she was seven months along, working on set, struggling to keep her pregnancy and marriage intact, she tripped over some cords, causing a fall. This trauma launched her into premature labor. The Reading Eagle publication of July 16, 1943 would report, quote, Veronica Lake's baby born prematurely dies. The child, Anthony Detley, born July 8, died yesterday of prematurity, said Dr. Raymond McBurney, the film star's physician. The three-pound baby had been placed in an incubator at birth and was given a blood transfusion in an effort to save his life. Miss Lake, in private life, the wife of Major John Detley, was injured in a fall at her studio and was taken to the hospital in an effort to prevent the birth of the child, not expected for another two months. She was not told of the baby's condition for several days because of her own illness." End quote. As much as she complained about being forced into the movie acting scene, when her husband asked her to quit the movie business after the accidental death of their son, she decided she wanted it even more. She chose to stay on set and work through her film with Alan Ladd instead of walking away. Her press, depicting her as a devoted wife and mother, couldn't keep chatter at bay about a love affair between her and Ladd, but not for lack of trying. On screen, it was clear they were perfect for each other only three inches in height difference, and their personalities just seemed to mesh. They were both very comfortable with each other's screen presence and thought highly of one another. Veronica would talk about her most famous co-star, Alan Ladd, in her autobiography, Veronica. Quote, Alan Ladd was a marvelous person in his simplicity. Naturally, the public linked us romantically, but neither of us cared about what the public conjured up. And we were just as indifferent to the studio's sly attempts to spread romantic rumors. It was all part of the game in enticing the public into the theater, and the Lad Lake billing proved to be a powerful lure. In so many ways, we were kindred spirits. We were both professionally conceived through Hollywood's search for box office and the types to ensure that box office. Both of us were very aloof. We were a good match for one another. It enabled us to work together very easily without friction or temperaments." End quote. This was basically the end of any kind of charmed life Veronica Lake might have hoped for. 1943, it came on hard and fast. It would be attributed to being the beginning of the end for the Veronica Lake as we have come to know and love.
Both Lake and Detley were heartbroken over the accident of losing their son, and their marriage simply couldn't survive it. The pair separated the same summer that baby Anthony passed and made the divorce official before the year was up. Reeling from her loss and without many coping mechanisms to speak of, it didn't take long for Lake to start drinking more heavily. As it turned out, her flowing peekaboo hairstyle was so popular among women, young workers in the ammunition factories were getting their loose hair dangerously caught in machinery. The government begged Lake to publicly change her hairstyle and advocate for women to adopt a more machine-friendly style. She complied, even making advertisements for the effort. It was certainly well-meaning, but it was also the beginning of Lake's downfall. In 1943, Paramount Newsreel showed her adopting an unswept hairdo at the behest of the War Woman Power Commission to discourage peekaboo bangs on Rosie the Riveter. Quote, like Samson in the Bible, Lake's hair change somehow drained her of all of her star power, and starting in 1944, she made a series of flops, end quote. Just months after she lost her child and her marriage imploded, Lake married again, this time to film director Andre de Toth. She would go on to have two children with de Toth, a boy named Michael and a girl named Diana. In the movie The Hour Before the Dawn, which was filmed in 1943 but not released until 1944, Lake's character required a German accent. Lake did not have a German accent and was apparently so bad at trying to muster one it cost her any positive reviews for the film. The studio attempted to correct the miscasting by throwing her into any movie which only backfired. Denny Jackson and Leslie Hoffman would write, quote, Hold that blonde out of this world and Miss Susie Slagles were just a waste of talent for the beautiful blonde, end quote. She would have a moment of grace with the film The Blue Dahlia in 1946, another pairing with Ladd, but would be considered her last quote-unquote decent film. Raymond Chandler, screenwriter for The Blue Dahlia, says, quote, The only time she's good is when she keeps her mouth shut and looks mysterious. And would also add, quote, there are three god-awful close shots of her looking perturbed that make me want to throw my lunch over the fence, end quote. Although The Blue Dahlia was technically a box office hit, the behind-the-scenes of its production and Chandler's thinly-veiled loathing of the actress and outwardly-spoken opinion of such have tainted the picture for Lake even to this day. In the aftermath of the film, Chandler sanctimoniously and infamously dubbed her Moronica Lake. After another few fails, 1948, Paramount cut her off. May 17, 1943, Lake would comment in her article following bond sales for the war effort for Life magazine, I, Veronica, quote, Sometimes I think I've been the author of Frankenstein, the one with the hairdo. I can get appendicitis and be sick three weeks and then get the flu, but not her. She's indestructible. She can get up at five, check in and make up at seven, so that by nine, that 17-inch strand of her toe locks can be draped over the eye and her seductive lips put on straight. What a gal. Has she got any connection with me? I'm worried. She's relaxed. I'm rationed. She's sleek. I'm small, suspicious, and unsure, and she's tall and poised and thoroughly experienced. The Army respects her. The Navy adores her. The Marines are nuts about her. No branch of the service recognizes me in real life from two feet away, end quote. When times were good, they were very good. 
New husband and Lake would work on several films together at 20th Century Fox, her roles being minor, but that seemed to be okay for the moment. And Lake got caught up in DeToth's passion for flying and would earn her own pilot's license and the couple would end up purchasing their own personal plane. But nothing could save them. Or her, technically, once Paramount pulled the plug on her career. She would quote, My mother and myself never got along too well, and that was from early childhood. In Hollywood, they had absolutely no way of knowing that this was true. My mother's real first name, it happens to be Veronica. And of all the names they pick, it had to be Veronica. And I just sat down and cried, end quote. And then there was that time when her mother decided to sue Veronica for support. The Los Angeles Times on October 13th would write, quote, Veronica Lake was taken to Good Samaritan Hospital tonight to await the birth of her third child in the midst of a money squabble with her mother, end quote. It continues with, quote, Her mother, Mrs. Constance Veronica Keene, earlier said that Miss Lake tossed her off like an old shoe after hitting the Hollywood big time. Mrs. Keene, 47, sued her daughter and the actress's husband, producer Andre de Toth, last Monday for $500 monthly support. The suit also asked for $17,416 she claims is due under a 1943 support agreement. I paid mother $115 a week until my stepfather died and paid his funeral expenses, Ms. Lake countered. Then I paid her $50 a week, end quote. Apparently, the bulk of this was happening in the hallways of the hospital, as Veronica is, according to her husband, Andre de Toth, quote, she's in there sobbing and crying and all on the account of this terrible thing, end quote. Mrs. Keene was happy to tell the reporters, taking down her every word, that she was, quote, destitute, indigent, dependent upon the charity of others, end quote. The lawsuit would also name her husband for, quote, aiding Miss Lake in evading her responsibility, end quote. He would respond to the accusations, quote, I don't even know the woman. Veronica and I have been married since 1944, and I've never met Mrs. Keene. She never calls up. We don't know anything about this charity business, end quote. Her mother would say that if it wasn't for her encouragement, Veronica never would have become a star, and she wanted her daughter to say thank you, monetarily, I guess, skipping the fact that she didn't want to go into acting in the first place, but I guess they didn't discuss that. She was in labor, after all. I didn't get to find out the specific end of that story, but I guess it wasn't to her favor, because Mrs. Keene would end up in the news again. The Stars and Stripe would report on February 8, 1949, quote, Veronica Lake's mother tries suicide after spat. Mrs. Constance Veronica Keene, 47, mother of sultry movie star Veronica Lake, was released from King's Hospital last night after being treated for three days for an overdose of sleeping tablets or other medication, which she took following an argument with her own mother. According to police, Mrs. Keene had a family argument with her mother, Mrs. Frances Trimble, 75, in Mrs. Trimble's apartment in Brooklyn where Mrs. Keene had been living. Mrs. Keene swallowed the sleeping tablets or medication as her mother looked on, police said, end quote. Oh, but wait, there's more. By this time, Lake's drinking was at mood-altering epic proportions. In 1951, both DeToth and Lake filed for bankruptcy, and then in 1952, the IRS seized her family home for unpaid taxes. That was it. That was the breaking point. 
she took their plane, packed up her things, and left her husband and children behind, claiming she wanted nothing to do with Hollywood again. She flew from Los Angeles to New York solo. Once her divorce was final in 1952, she all but evaporated into the bustle of New York going by the name of Connie DeToth. She would rarely, if ever, see her children again. She would continue performing on stage and is believed to have traveled to England for some stage work. On August 29, 1955, the Traverse City, Michigan paper would report, quote, Theater star Veronica Lake marries Mrs. Joseph McCarthy, theatrical star Veronica Lake, and her New York music publisher, writer, husband, cut the wedding cake after their marriage Sunday in Traverse City. McCarthy and Miss Lake were married in a quiet ceremony prior to her final summer theater performance of Affairs of State at the Traverse City Playhouse, end quote. She would divorce again in September of 1959. She would continue to find work in theater, but drinking steadily got worse as she drifted from job to job and hotel to hotel. Apparently, there was a fourth husband that I really couldn't find out much information about other than he went by Captain Bob. His real name was Robert Carlton Monroe, and he was an English naval officer. Their marriage was either brief or they were in the process of a divorce when she died, and I don't know if he really knew who she was or as the cocktail waitress. In 1962, she was rediscovered and an outpouring of love from her fans funneled toward her. By this time, she was working as a cocktail waitress in a seedy restaurant and was unrecognizable as the former Hollywood starlet, the reporter saying she looked decades beyond her years. Gifts and money were sent to help her rise above her condition, which was believed to be barely above poverty and drunk more than sober. While her fans meant the gifts as a kindness, her temper skyrocketed. She'd say, quote, It's as though people were making me out to be down and out. I wasn't. Besides, she said, she took a job as a waitress because I like people. I like to talk to them, not because she had nowhere else to turn, end quote. Accordingly, Lake sent back everything well-wishers sent to her as a matter of pride, all except one gift. Actor Marlon Brando heard of her financial trouble like the rest of the world and sent her a check for $1,000. She never cashed it, but she saved it and framed it, deeply touched by his gift. She would speak lovingly of Brando, saying, quote, Our romance was short but sweet. He was on the dawn of a brilliant film career, and I was in the twilight of one. Of course, my career could never compare with his, end quote. After Lake's rediscovery in the cocktail bar and everyone's outpouring of support, she falsely took it as a sign that it was time to come back to the Hollywood scene. She would accept roles for television and other small roles for stage, and she would be offered the opportunity to tell her story for an autobiography written with Donald Bain. With the income she made from it, she would purchase a home in the British Isles. I think this is where she meets Captain Bob, but I'm not sure. She would also put some of the money in to produce the film Flesh Feast in 1969. It was an extremely low-budget movie, and it would fail in a big way when it was released in 1970. This would be, unfortunately, Veronica Lake's last big-screen appearance. Later in 1970, Hollywood reporter Sue Cameron would meet with Veronica Lake to interview her. She would tell of her introduction to the star to Fox News, quote, 
My picture of her was this gorgeous screen siren with the beautiful blonde hair covering one eye. But there sat a woman who looked like a cleaning lady. I was really startled. I instantly knew here was someone who was probably struggling financially. You could see she was very damaged. The alcohol had wrecked Lake's sought-after beauty so much she appeared to be in her 70s when she was just 47. End quote. In 1970, Hollywood would honor Veronica Lake with a star on the Walk of Fame. She felt excited and spent the money to go to her induction ceremony. Maybe it was just assumed that there would be an induction ceremony, because when she arrived accompanied by Sue Cameron, there was no one there but one other person. She was heartbroken, which is understandable. Quote, it was a brutal shock, and Lake would never recover, end quote. Cameron's own thoughts, she shared, were, quote, That day she was getting a star on the Walk of Fame. She asked me to go with her. I said, of course. I had no idea there wouldn't be anybody there. There was not one person there. She was standing alone on Hollywood Boulevard with me and Gary Owens from Laugh-In and her star sitting there. There was no microphone. There was nothing. It was just three people. I was devastated for her. Just devastated. It was really a stunning experience. I could see that she recognized what was happening. She put on a brave face. She tried to smile through it, but you could see that she was just trying to get through it. She wanted to get it over with, and she couldn't wait to leave. She literally left town as soon as that picture was taken. End quote. Stories vary, but as close as I could find, in June of 1973, Lake was touring the United States drumming up publicity for her autobiography when she suddenly began to suffer from severe stomach pains. She was rushed to a hospital in Vermont, and it was discovered she had psoriasis of the liver. It had advanced to the point that there was nothing else that could be done for her. She would barely make it another week. IMDB would write, quote, as with so much else in her life, Lake got nothing better than the bare minimum. End quote. She would die on the morning of July 7, 1973, of kidney and liver failure, alone in a hospital. She was penniless. Her publicist, William Roos, would be shocked, saying, quote, Frankly, I didn't think she was going to die. End quote. He was not aware of the extreme state of her medical condition. As she would say in one of her last interviews, quote, I am not going to hang on to my blood, nor am I going to allow them to hang on to me. I know what that has done to me by my mother, and I'm not going to do that, end quote. Her son, Michael DeToth, would fly from his home in Hawaii to arrange for the cremation and a small memorial service that was held at the Universal Chapel on July 11th in New York, but it would have to wait another three years until her friend and author of her autobiography, Donald Bain, and her publicist, William Roos, would pay to retrieve the actual ashes and urn from the funeral home. It's said that Bain spread her ashes at sea in the Virgin Islands as were her final wishes. But depending on who you listen to, some say he kept a little more than a tablespoon and sold them to an antique dealer where her urn and a smattering of ashes appeared at Catskill's Antique Store. Reporter Sue Cameron went on to surmise the life of the alcoholic lake, quote, Alcoholics seem to have a self-destructive button, and the many good things that happen to them, they tend to blow it up. I think she did it deliberately without even knowing, end quote. And maybe that's what ended up happening. She would confess to Ms. Cameron, quote, 
Sometimes I wonder if anyone remembers me. End quote. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. She knew she was meant to be a star. She was a California baby with a theater mama who found success on the stage herself. Unlike some of our other blondes, Gloria Graham needed no nudging from her mother. She was born November 28, 1923, and would grow up watching her mother teach acting classes. It was no surprise then that her older sister Joy and she would end up in the theater world. Gloria would even drop out of Hollywood High School to pursue it as a career. Oddly enough, her search for fame would take her away from her Hollywood backyard as she would begin her stage work in Chicago, Illinois in the early 1940s. Broadway would finally accept her in 1943 for the production of The World is Full of Girls. She was signed to a contract with MGM by Louis B. Mayer himself after seeing her performance on Broadway. Her first role on the big screen would be Blonde Fever, where she would get billed alongside Mary Astor and Philip Dorn in 1944. The next role of note would be one of her most popular. She played the part of Violet Bick in the 1946 film It's a Wonderful Life with James Stewart. But even with the raging success of the movie and the praise for her screen presence, MGM felt they could not mold her into one of their girls, so they sold her contract to RKO Studios soon after. She was loaned out and passed around to several studios while she built her resume. She gained notoriety for playing the femme fatale in the noir genre and happily broke the mold if other parts would come up. She would be nominated for her first Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in the movie Crossfire in 1947, but actually snagged the coveted gold statue in The Bad and the Beautiful in 1952. Side note, the part that won her an Oscar was practically a cameo. She was only on screen for just over nine minutes. This would hold the record for the shortest performance to win an Oscar until 1976 when the record was broken with actress Beatrice Strait's performance in the movie Network. Side note to the side note, she would tell of her son commandeering her solid gold Oscar. She'd say, quote, I practically haven't seen my Oscar since I won it. Timmy plays with it in his room and takes it to bed with him when he goes to sleep. As for what I think of my cherished Oscar, all I can say is that no fond mother takes away her child's favorite plaything, end quote. After her death, by the way, Oscar would be found stuffed in a closet. It is believed that the role of Ado Annie in the musical Oklahoma was the beginning of the end of her career. Not only was she tone-deaf, causing the sound editors to painstakingly splice together her song piece by piece, but by this time in her life, she had had so much plastic surgery done to her face, mainly her lips, that her top lip was partially paralyzed. And this role was such a stretch from anything her fans had seen her in, they just couldn't accept it. She'd gone too far out of the boundary for typecasting. And yet, it's considered one of her most beloved roles by a next generation of Gloria Graham fans. But as for Hollywood her movie role opportunities became almost non-existent. In case you were curious, plastic surgery has been around for a long time. It became a specialty in America during World War I, helping the soldiers cosmetically with their injuries. 
but it has always been an asset as far as Hollywood is concerned. Coming off their work for Notable Causes for Our Soldiers, Dr. Richard Dolsky would write in an article in the American Journal of Cosmetic Surgery in 1999, quote, Most plastic surgeons yearned to be recognized as serious surgeons and avoided what were considered frivolous procedures, end quote. But then the demand became too great. Even a young Mary Pickford in the 1930s received a facelift when she was still relatively young and it damaged her smile. Most actresses and actors that used the service didn't want it known, but it's said that Gloria became addicted to an image in her mind that she just couldn't bring to reality. According to Dr. Richard Dolsky, in the 1930s, some surgeons, quote, bobbed noses and performed some breast operations, although such work occurred quietly without fanfare, end quote. For Gloria, it was her top lip. She hated it. She thought it was too thin and too rigid. She attempted to use cotton and stuffed it under her lip to make it appear more plump, but it would, more than once, slip out during a passionate kiss or two. Talk about a mood killer. It was then she sought a more permanent solution. She would try several times, but she could only see imperfections in her face. Her top lip, as I mentioned, eventually went numb due to nerve damage from so much cosmetic surgery. Her final film would be in 1981, and it would be in the horror genre. I think it's an unwritten code in the movie industry that if the only roles you're being offered are in the horror genre, it's time to pack up because your career is over. If you recall, Veronica Lake's final film was in horror also, and she helped pay for it. Gloria Graham's on-screen persona took the shape of the pouty seductress, often, so often perhaps, she began thinking art was life. She was married four times, not uncommon in those who live and work in Hollywood, (laughs) even these days. In 1945, she married Stanley Clements, but Their tumultuous relationship ended in divorce in 1948. Just one day after the divorce was officially over, Gloria would marry Nicholas Ray, who would be best known for directing 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Why rush into another marriage so soon? Well, she was already four months pregnant with Ray's child. Timothy would be born five months after their wedding day. But wait, that's not the worst of it. The newlyweds tried to steer the press away from the obvious timeline of their son by working on her next film together, In a Lonely Place, in 1950. Probably not a good idea. Humphrey Bogart was the lead actor in the movie, and he wanted his wife to play the female lead. Bogart was granted first rights for his lead, but Lauren Bacall's studio wouldn't release her for the film. Ray obviously wanted his wife, but the studio wasn't too keen on that idea, So they tried a couple more options, Ginger Rogers being one. Nicholas Ray threw a fit and demanded his wife get the part. So Bacall was out, Rogers was out, and finally, Graham was in. This, the outside world may believe, would be the couple's undoing. Ray took advantage of having his wife on the set, and others noted that he was, quote, controlling and aggressive, end quote. But that's not all. Ray had a contract drawn up and forced her to sign it, agreeing in part, quote, My husband shall be entitled to direct, control, advise, instruct, and even command my actions during the hours of 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day except Sunday, end quote. 
She then further acknowledged in writing that, quote, In every conceivable situation, his will and judgment shall be considered superior to mine and shall prevail. End quote. Hang on, she also couldn't, quote, nag, cajole, tease, or in any other feminine fashion seek to distract or influence him. End quote. They were seen fighting daily on set, and Gloria refused to be directed by her husband, contract or no contract. They were on the verge of separation and did their best to disguise it, worried that one or the other would be booted from the film. Ray would end up sleeping on the set in one of the dressing rooms, claiming he was working on the script, while Gloria would go home to their shared residence. The truth is, there was another secret going on behind the scenes and under the covers. No, not just an affair. Those were apparently a dime of dozen in this era. Something more than the average affair. The story goes that in 1951, husband Nicholas Ray would come home unexpectedly one day and discover his wife in bed with, wait for it, his son, his 13-year-old son, Anthony Ray, Gloria's stepson was recently home from military school, and, uh, yeah, that marriage was officially over. Not to be lonely too long, Gloria jumped into another marriage with television producer Cy Howard. Even though barely married for five minutes, she was having an affair with co-star of Human Desire, Glenn Ford. There would be a daughter, I think from the married couple, in 1956, Mariana Paulette. It's no surprise, then, that their marriage ended in 1957. She would claim mental cruelty. In 1958, eight years after 13-year-old Anthony Ray and Gloria were caught, they got back in touch with each other and ended up getting married in Tijuana, Mexico. He was 23, and she was 37. Side note. So, at this point, her son... Timothy Ray would also become her brother-in-law, and also her new husband would be the stepfather to his half-brother. They chose to keep their union secret for obvious reasons, knowing full well no one in Hollywood had a short memory, but their secret was exposed in 1962. This was when two of her three ex-husbands decided that she was not capable of making good choices and came after her for custody of their respective children. Nicholas wanted her parental rights revoked for their son Timothy, and Cy Howard wanted sole custody of their daughter Mariana. A huge press-fueled drama unfolded in the eyes of millions. Offers for film, television, and even stage came to a screeching halt. In 1964, Graham would commit herself to a sanitarium for a massive nervous breakdown. Here, she was supposedly subjected to electroshock therapy to dull her nervousness. She would never fully recover professionally or privately. Her marriage to Anthony Ray would end up being her longest, producing two more children, Anthony Ray Jr. and James Ray, but it too would end in divorce just prior to another big turn of events in her life. In 1974, she would be diagnosed with breast cancer. She turned her life around, giving up drinking and smoking and changing her diet while also participating in experimental radiation therapy. Something somewhere, or perhaps a combination of things, worked. 
Within a year, the cancer was in remission, and she was given a second chance. She threw herself back into work, accepting any roles offered on stage and the occasional film. She began an affair in 1979 with Peter Turner, who was 30 years her junior and would be her biographer. They would have two years together before her health took a turn for the worse. Instead of telling him what was happening, he would say she shut him out. She stopped talking and then suddenly moved away. In 1980, her cancer returned and spread to her stomach, but this time around, Gloria did not want to slow down. It's rumored she stubbornly refused to confront the deadly disease and continued to work at a tiring pace. She opted only to have her stomach drained, which resulted in a perforated bowel. Gloria Graham would tell the press, quote, There's always a race against time. I don't think for one moment that life gets better. How can it? One's body starts to fall apart. End quote. In 1981, she was playing a role on stage in Lancaster, England, when she collapsed from excruciating pains in her abdomen. She didn't want to talk about it, and Peter wouldn't discover the cause of their unspoken breakup until her physical collapse. Most likely aware that she was nearing the end, she thought about how she wanted to spend her final days. She would reach out to her ex-boyfriend, Peter Turner, and request his help to allow her to stay at his mother's house in Liverpool. And, by the way, she would add, don't tell my children. Peter would help her get situated in the home, but no sooner did he return to America, he would reach out to her family. Her son, Timothy, and daughter, Mariana, would insist on bringing her back to America. Gloria didn't want to go, and her doctors agreed that she shouldn't be moved, but the children insisted. They brought her back on October 5, 1981. She didn't survive the night. She was only 57 years old. Peter Turner would go on to write a book, which was turned into a movie starring Annette Bening and Jamie Bell about her last days. It was titled, Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. He'd say, quote, I just want people to remember her. They will. And there's a chance Gloria's story will become shorthand for every female actor who tried to put herself back together after being torn apart by Hollywood, end quote. Gloria herself would say, quote, I don't think I ever understood Hollywood. Whatever they told me to do, I did. I went to the studio in the morning, stayed on the set all day, then I went home and ate my dinner and studied my part and went to sleep, end quote. Thank you for joining me this week for part two of the Tragic Blonde Bombshell episode. Next week, we discuss the blonde bombshells from the 1950s. So, side note, I'm hearing that you guys are all stalking the social media platforms that Bag of Bones is on, Facebook and Instagram. Stop your scroll and say hello. I'd love to just know that you're out there. Don't be a stranger. A like or two wouldn't kill anybody. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougere, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougere.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougere and DCT Enterprises.